Welcome, viewers and listeners, to the Total Football Analysis EPL Podcast. We are the Thinking Fans Podcast. Each week, we get together with our besties, who are current pro players, real coaches, academics, and stat heads. In the end, we want to provide thoughtful takes about football and democratize analytics in football. We are sponsored by the EPL Prospectus, a 280-page guide of the upcoming season created by a team of 25-plus writers and designers. Moneyball for Football, Analytics Plus Eye Candy, available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. Today, I'm joined by the hardest-working analyst, Harshal Patel. I'm host, Chris Mumford, known as The Professor. Bella Chow. The season seemed to start quietly. The break has been so brief while the Manchester teams got time off for good behavior. New Look Arsenal took on newly promoted Fulham and relegated threatened West Ham. Premier League champions Liverpool hosted championship champions Leeds and the off-season spending champions Chelsea. Lively Liverpool took on an all-or-nothing Tottenham and new kid on the block, West Brom. Europa contenders Wolves faced Wonderkund, Sheffield United. Meanwhile, Lampert is having to assemble the Chelsea attacking half, which is more complicated than a Kia dresser. Their dress rehearsal was brightened when the first show of the big six battles came against Liverpool. And finally, the shadow of Bielsa is in the Premier League house. So let's get started. Let's talk about uh, one of the the most exciting games, or billed to be most exciting at least, which was the Liverpool-Chelsea match, which Liverpool won 2-0. Harshel, help us break down that game. Well, um, I think obviously Liverpool benefited from the fact that uh, Andreas Christensen made that challenge on Sadio Mane towards the end of the first half, got sent off, and then it was a lot easier for them in the second half than it was in the first half. They scored both uh, they scored both goals and eventually ran out comfortable winners. But um, I thought the first half was quite evenly matched in the sense that, I mean, Chelsea weren't really threatening the Liverpool goal that much, but they were able to keep Liverpool at bay to quite an extent. It was quite a decent performance from Chelsea, uh, from Chelsea till that sort of, uh, you know, loss of composure from Christensen. Although, I mean, I can, I can, I have a bit of sympathy for him in the fact that that pass from Jordan Henderson was absolutely perfect. It forced Christensen to make that decision to uh, foul Mane. The Kepa had to come out as well, and and um, you know it was sort of a no man's land where uh, it could have easily been a goal either way, even if the challenge had not been made. So I feel a bit for Christensen, but at the same time, it was a stupid challenge. I mean, you can't make a rugby tackle like that, especially when you're the last man. The only thing I found surprising was that it took the referee. You know, he had to go to the screen to see that it was a red card because he put out a yellow card at the beginning. But uh, second half, especially because uh, Liverpool made a change on, uh, on the break as well. They brought in Thiago um, off the bench to replace Henderson. And they absolutely controlled the game from there on. Thiago, uh, I think there was a stat doing the rounds after the game that he had he made more passes in that half than the entire Chelsea team put together in, in that entire game. Which is obviously conditioned by the fact that they had 10 players, but that tells you the kind of player he is. So I'm really looking forward to seeing him in the league. It's um, He's a bona fide world-class player who's come into Liverpool and makes them even stronger now. Um, and for Chelsea, it's just a case of 
figuring out how these new guys gel because they've got a bunch of new players into the team and Lampard needs to try and understand how to use them and uh, get them up to speed quickly. But he may not have the luxury of time because the other teams will, uh, are not going to sort of stay still. You know, they're, they're points that they're going to lose in in the bargain. So I guess what my take was is I'm very angry at Christensen because he ruined the perfectly good match. I do think the first half was evenly matched. I think the playing styles were quite different. It was interesting to see. I think Werner was very, very dangerous. Uh, and quite honestly, I thought Liverpool was was thwarted effectively by the Chelsea uh, organization uh, and by some strong uh, individual play. But by the time we got to the second half, it became really a, almost like a training session, which I'll tell you, as someone that enjoys watching competitive football, it was very disappointing. It, it did give some some kind of hints at what the new look Liverpool uh, is going to look like with Thiago in there. Uh, you know, it's going to be very interesting how um, Henderson, Wijnaldum, and Thiago are, are rotated uh, in the squad. Um, I do think that having that sort of depth is going to be really important. But, you know, I, again, I'm just – I'm disappointed that I, I invested 45 minutes waiting for an awesome second half and – this happens. It was a NFL uh, safety tackle on a wide receiver. Uh, you know, uh, it's just really disappointing. It's almost a pass, a no, a no second thought passing interference call uh, to use in, in NFL speak. So I guess with that in mind, Liverpool has shown itself. We've got two games worth of data. Help me. What are your quick thoughts on on Leeds? What what, what can we add that? hasn't already been mentioned. And how do you think Liverpool is set up um, going forward? So first of all, I think Leeds are going to be incredibly fun to watch. They played two games, they scored eight goals and they conceded seven. They've, they've been involved in two games where the scoreline has been 4-3. They, they lost by that scoreline against Liverpool in the first week and they beat Fulham um, in the second week by that same scoreline. So it's a small sample size, obviously, but having followed them in the championship last season as well, I think they're going to be an incredibly fun side to watch, if nothing else. There's going to be a lot of attacking um, and it's going to be very um, brave uh, because Bielsa is just, he is absolutely uncompromising in terms of the way he wants his teams to play. It doesn't matter who they're playing, they will not change their playing style. So expect to see goals, expect to see um, some crazy positional uh, sort of situations arising where on both sides, I mean, Leeds could easily be caught, say, two or three defenders against four or five attackers. But on the other hand, because of their positional game, you could see them have that sort of advantage when they're attacking as well. So I think it's just going to be a lot of fun watching them. And I do obviously hope that they manage to get enough points to stay up. But it's even if that doesn't happen, I mean, we've still got the whole season to go for that, but it's still going to be really entertaining to watch. Um, I couldn't help yeah. but see the playing philosophy uh, of Liverpool leads uh, in the positional um, high press versus the um, individual man high pressing. Yeah. Um, that was really interesting for me to see. I'm really struck by today I saw Liverpool, uh, obviously their front three were rotating left, right, center, I, you know, almost like a, uh, you know, just uh, – a cups game, you know, moving them across. But I also there saw a few times where the midfielders seemed to be um, ex uh, exchanging with some of the strikers. And I just, I, I kind of 
that's kind of Leeds MO. And uh, I, I think it's fascinating that Klopp in many ways seems to be playing a super high line uh, versus before. Um, not afraid to do uh, go direct a lot more, uh, which is very um, interesting to see. Um, and, you know, the, the Leeds piece, I have become a, a Bielsa fan. There's no question. <laughs> I just think that uh, he brings something fresh. And kind of big picture-wise, I'm really struck by will Bielsa be able to keep his dogma? Because I think Pep came in with a strong dogma, and I think he's um, become more practical um, at times. Uh, and I just think that the Premier League can be so punishing that uh, staying with 100% dogma uh, may put you on the wrong side of relegation. So, you know, I'm, I'm of mixed heads on whether Leeds will be a uh, kind of a mid-table mid or, or just above relegation, largely because you know, their their performance against Leeds was fabulous. You know, Fulham was a good game, uh, but I'm struck by the fact that it was a 4-3 game against another team that had been promoted. So that that worries me a little bit when you have seven goals scored on you in the first two games. But welcome to the Premier League. I want to go ahead and turn our attention to um, Everton. You know, Everton seemed to have... Um, Really, their their midfield seemed to have uh, really come together in the match against Tottenham. Uh, that was with a, a 1-0 win over Tottenham. Help me break down what your take was on that score fast, Everton versus West Brom, 5-2. So what I've taken away from Everton's first two games, obviously, um, they've effectively bought a new midfield. They've brought in... Um, Abdelaide Courier from Watford. They've brought Allen in from Napoli. And obviously... James Rodriguez, the big signing from uh, Real Madrid. And it's important to note that both Allen and James have played under Ancelotti. That's one of the biggest reasons why they, they agreed to come to a club like Everton. They're, I mean, they're used to competing in the Champions League and they've come to a club here which has Europa League designs at best. I mean, I don't think anybody can expect them to, champ, uh, to challenge the Champions League places right now. But... They've also had some of their best seasons under Ancelotti at uh, Napoli and Real Madrid. And in the case of James at Bayern as well, he was on loan to Bayern when Ancelotti was manager from Real. And that was again a time when he had some of his best football. So they've obviously overhauled their midfield and it looked really um, good and compact against Spurs. But I thought they were a bit open against West Brom, which was slightly concerning because um, obviously even in, even in that game we saw a red card Kieran Gibbs got sent off and that completely changed the complexion of the game just before halftime. It was still a close game and then Everton ran right in the second half. But uh, in the first half, right before Everton scored, I think, there was a uh, there was a breakaway where, uh, sorry, uh, I mean, for the Everton, uh, for West Brom's goal, they took the lead. They were able to go through the Everton midfield very easily. There was no pressure. There was no, um, there were just acres of space in there. And, a lot of times during the match, in the first half at least, when it was a lot more competitive, you could see that that Allen, Ducore, Andre Gomez was the third midfielder and then you had James coming in from the right. They weren't exactly sure yet of their roles, which can be expected. I mean, three of those four guys are new to the club. So I think Ancelotti has a bit of a task on his hands to get them a bit more organized and for them to each, excuse me, for them to know each other's roles and their own roles. Because it, at times it felt like Allen was maybe pushing on a little too much or Dukure wasn't pushing on when he needed to and that certain spaces weren't being occupied. 
But uh, all in all, I think Everton fans will be obviously supremely happy. Dominic Calvert-Lewin looks like he's on a hot run of form. Uh, he was looking really good last season. He scored 13 goals, but he started this season, uh, this season like a house on fire. Richarlison looks good. James um, obviously is absolutely class. You've, you've, we've already seen him pull off some amazing passes. Um, he's good on the ball. He, he doesn't give it away. He has the ability to create something out of nothing. And Allen and Ducore are able to sort of shut down midfield in that sense. You know, they can protect the back four. Ducore can obviously bomb on as a box-to-box midfielder as well. So it's a good squad and a good eleven that he has. Ancelotti, he has options on the bench as well. Um, so yeah, I've, I'm, I'm pretty encouraged by what I've seen from Everton. They could be a fun side to watch. Yeah, I think my take is when I'm watching them play fairly quickly, I can determine what sort of system they're working with, right? There, there seems to be some intentionality to it. Um, they're upgrading their players. You know, I think Ancelotti is getting his guys in there now. Um, I don't think they're going to contend for the, the top four or Champions League spots any times. Could they be a contender for that that uh, final Europa spot? I don't know. Um, but I'm excited that there's some competitiveness uh, being uh, generated over on that side of Merseyside. Um, so, so let's turn attention to what I think was probably a sad, your saddest part of the weekend, which was the Man U Crystal Palace, where Crystal Palace was able to upset 3-1. Help us unpack those elements. Yeah, before I get on to the Manchester United side of things, um, Palace have won two games in a row. That's the first time they've done that in the Premier League era. So in the last 30 odd years, whenever they've been in the top flight, it's the first time they won their first two games. Um, and that's also something which I don't think anybody would have expected in the close season or even towards the end of last season. Roy Hodgson is one of the oldest guys around, but he's somehow been able to get a tune out of these guys where they've looked solid, they've looked organized, and they've looked like a real threat on the break. And what's also surprised me is the fact that it's quite clear that Wilfred Zaha wants to leave in this summer. Um, and Hudson has said so himself multiple times in press conferences as well that he's looking to leave. But despite that, he looks completely focused on the pitch. He's got three goals in two games now. So, and he, he just looks like a threat every time on the break. And uh, some of the other guys are stepping up as well around him. So, it's been an impressive showing from Palace, both these games. Uh, and obviously, again, long way to go. A lot depends on if they can keep Zaha towards till the end of the window. But... Uh, Encouraging signs for them. Now coming to Man United, they um, they looked off the pace. It was, um, and I think some of the um, sort of blame or some of the um, anger that's been directed towards the team can be mitigated by the fact that this was their first game, right? Some of the players had been in training for a week, ten days. Palace, on the other hand, had already played a Premier League game and they played four friendlies in preseason. To, uh, in the preseason, United have played one friendly in preseason and they straight away got into this game. So they were definitely undercooked physically, and you could see that they were not um, at the same level physically as Palace were, which led to a lot of displaced passes, which led to players being out of position or maybe taking one touch more than they should have before releasing the ball and all of that. You know, so United's build up was slow. Um, it was predictable. There was not a lot of invention. And there is a lot of mitigation for that in, in the fact that preseason was um, delayed and you had a very short preseason. But at the same time, there are there's enough quality on the pitch for them to have done better than that. 
I mean, the defending for um, the first goal and the third goal, Lindelof for the first goal loses Jeffrey Schlupp and Luke Shaw loses uh, Andrew Townsend at the back post. He gets in there and scores. Both of them don't go, on, go with their markers. For the third goal, Lindelof is absolutely caught napping there. He's, his defending was atrocious. Second goal again, I mean, I wouldn't really say it was Lindelof's fault. I mean, the ball hits his hand and the way the handball law is now, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, anywhere, if the ball hits you anywhere, no matter where your hand is, it's going to be a penalty, which is just ridiculous for me. But it was defensively, I don't think United was solid. Because Palace, it's not just them. There were a couple of other opportunities for Palace to get in. Excuse me. Uh, I got to tell you, what, Harsh, yeah, what, really, what really struck me is just how lack of energy Manu was. I just, all the liveliness was on Crystal Palace's side. And I get the fact that they haven't spent time together, but um, I just wonder a little bit about some of the player selection. You know, I think in the second half when Greenwood came in, uh, things just picked up a little bit. And, uh, you know, I, I just, something's off. Now, I will say Tottenham was off in their first match. You know they didn't. They didn't seem to have a whole lot of energy. So maybe you're right. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. It is only one game, but you would expect a team that wants to seriously contend for a Champions League spot has to put away another team like Crystal Palace away. That's that's the thing. Yeah. So let, let's turn our attention to another uh, perspective uh, Champions League, uh, which is Arsenal. You know, Arsenal seems to be making the right selections uh, in terms of fortifying their squad. I think they, they kind of learned from their Pepe experience. Maybe we should be um, focusing on the areas, frankly, that I think matter the most. They had a fairly uh, pedestrian win over newly promoted Fulham, 3-0. Um, and then they played West Ham. And that game was a lot closer. Um, Harshel, what, what happened in that game? What did you see out of that? So, over the first two games, again, I've been very impressed with Arsenal in terms of just the fact that there looks like there's a clear playing style, a clear philosophy that Arteta is putting in place. It's flexible. He, it, it, I mean, he may start with a back three, but it morphs into a back four in possession. At times, the wing back pushes on, so the um, left sided centre half becomes a left back. At times, the wing back comes inside, where, which we saw with. Uh, in, uh, in, in, the, in the first game against Fulham, where he was coming inside and becoming a central midfielder. So that allowed Kieran Tierney to then go on as the left back. Billion was in changing positions with Bellerin going out to the wing. So Hector Bellerin was coming inside. There was a lot of positional interchanging fluidity, and all the players seemed to know their roles. So uh, that sort of that that was um, evident in the second game as well. But I just think. West Ham gave them more of a, a fight than Fulham did. I think Fulham, are, to be honest, on a, on a slightly different note, I think Fulham are going to have a real struggle in the Premier League this season. I don't think they're off the net. they have the players sort of who are good enough to cut it out at the moment here. So either they're going to need some more recruitment or Scott Parker has to pull a blinder in terms of how he's going to coach them and have a proper system in place because some of those players are absolutely not Premier League level. But uh, coming back to Arsenal and West Ham, um, yeah, I thought uh, West Ham gave them a bit more of a fight, but maybe didn't make um, the most of some of the chances that were created. I thought a couple of decisions by David Moyes were a little iffy in terms of the substitutions he made or uh, the changes, the tactical changes he might have made. And then Arsenal eventually managed to come away with the win. 
but yeah, I, I think Arsenal fans will be pretty um, happy with how it's gone so far. Six points from six. Team, they've got. They're looking good. They've got some good players in. Gabriel looks like a really good centre back. Billion has hit the ground running. So, uh, and obviously the biggest news is the fact that Aubameyang signed a new contract. He's captain. He's happy. He's settled, and he's, you know, he's a world class player, and he he'll score the goals for you. You know, so you've, you've got a settled unit there. Yeah, I think you really have to um, to give an assist to the to the coach now now manager team manager yeah. um, for getting Aubameyang over the line. Um, you know, I was really glad to see that Lacassette, even though I think he's getting the least love from Arsenal, uh, that he still shows up, true professional, has a beautiful goal. Um, really nice to see that. Uh, I, I, I really am starting to um, buy into that revolution of, of the mindset coming on, right? Uh, that that part's been really fun to see Arsenal transform over the last, you know, eight to 10 months. Um, so let's turn our attention to some Europa contestants or Euro- those that are going to be fighting for Europa slots, which is the Wolves and Sheffield United. They played fairly early um, and the Wolves ended up winning 2-0. Do you have any, any thoughts on that match? I thought, um, now, I mean, obviously, it's just one game. We don't have too much information yet. But Sheffield United might be in for a bit of trouble in terms of... Uh, they just looked a bit off in terms of everything that was there last season. Uh, the energy, the, the tactical position, the some of the passing, some of the movement. It still looked a bit off. I mean, again, and that could just be a factor uh, based on the fact that this, the, the turnaround time between the two seasons has been short, so they've not had a lot of pre-season work. Players may not be fully fit yet and all of that. So again, still not really... I'm still sort of holding my judgment and I think they've, uh, Chris Wilder has still got a very well-drilled system out there. So I'm not going to say that they're going to be relegation trouble. But they looked off their game in that match. So let's see. Let's see how the next few matches go, whether they've uh, they can sort of get back to the level at where they were last season. They've got a few signings in. They've got a few players in. They're trying to get a, a striker in. So the news is that they're trying to get Rian Brewster in on loan from Liverpool, which if they do, would be a great signing because I think he'd work perfectly in that system. They've managed to get backups, so both of their wing-backs in. So, um, it just... I, I think this season is going to be that way. where We're going to see a lot of teams struggle or sort of take their time to get up to speed. It's going to take a few matches. Whereas the teams that hit the ground running will be able to get that advantage in terms of the points they win. Um, and that's so, basically what I thought happened in that game, in the Sheffield United Wolves game. I got you. So while we're on the on the Wolves, let's talk about the, the Man City match uh, that they're going to be playing. What, what what are the things you're going to be looking for in that match? Now, Wolves did the double over City last season. They beat them both home and away. So I don't know if they can do that sort of repeat or even come up with a similar level of performance but that automatically tells me that Pep will try and especially also because it's the first game of the new season he wants to lay down a marker in terms of the fact that City are going to push uh, Liverpool all the way so I expect City to come out extremely strong against Wolves mm-hmm. um, Wolves have actually this is the first season um, since Wolves have been promoted that they've lost a couple of first team players um, Matt Doherty who is 
obviously the starting right wing back has got the Spurs. They've just lost uh, Diogo Jota to Liverpool. So it'll be interesting to see how Nuno changes things around there. They are looking to get a couple of players in. There's the rumors that uh, Semedo's in on his way from Barcelona, and maybe one or two more signings might happen as well. But they, they, Nuno's going to have to make a couple of changes to his first choice lineup now, and it'll be interesting to see how that happen, how that works out, and how that affects the dynamic of that side. But I think it'll be a good game. I think really think it'll be a good game. The City are going to go for it. So, do you think that? In terms of first-team casualties due to the pandemic, uh, namely the financial casualties I'm referring to, do you think Wolves are probably the biggest losers uh, of all the Premier League teams? Who, who's lost more first-team players of, of impact? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say Wolves because, I mean, they've gone and spent £35 million on an 18-year-old striker, Fabio Silva. Okay. He's, he's not worth £35 million, but they've spent on the potential. So it's not like they don't have the money. And... They obviously have the contacts because of the Portuguese influence that and Jorge Mendes is a big influence there as well. A lot of his clients are already at the club. So they will always be able to get players in and good, talented, young players in through their contacts. And they have the money as well. They're backed by a Chinese group. Fosin is the group that owns them. So okay. I wouldn't say that they're the biggest casualties, but they've lost two very key players. That's the thing. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how... Uh, Nuno manages to get some uh, somebody else into those roles and get them performing at the same level that Jota and Dorothy were before they left. Okay. Well, let's talk about next Saturday's matches briefly. Um, uh, uh, Brighton is going to be taking on uh, Manchester United. What are your quick thoughts on that game? What, what are you looking for? In theory, it could be a good game for United because Brighton obviously have evolved over the last season or so, under Graham Potter, they've gone to a very possession, heavy possession-oriented side. They they played really well today as well. Um, they won three 0 against Newcastle. Kept the ball really well. There was some ex- excellent positional interchanges. Tariq Lamptey looks like a really good player on at right back. They got him in for I think peanuts about a million or two million from Chelsea in January. He's just 19 years old and he's absolutely been, and not just today, even in the first game against Chelsea, he was a huge threat. So, theoretically, it could go well for United in the sense that United have done well against teams which keep the ball because they are great at counter-attacking. But, I don't know if if um, United are going to be up to speed in terms of their physical preparation for this game. And yeah, that's what I'm going to be looking for is, is kind of what their physical preparation is. And, I still think Ole's tinkering around with what lineups are going to look like. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to be curious to see how that plays out on Saturday. So how about Chelsea-West Brom? Is that going to be another kind of um, solid W for Chelsea? Is there anything of, of note um, to say about that match? It should be. But what surprised me about Chelsea is the fact that um, both against Liverpool today and last week against uh, Brighton, they played a very direct game. They, they played long balls out from the back. They played passes for Werner to chase into the channels. They played passes out to his habits to play to run onto the channels when that's not his game. And I can understand that that's also a factor of the opposition you're facing where Brighton and Liverpool are good on the ball so you want to give them the ball and encounter against them. But I'd expect to see a lot of a much more expansive Chelsea side next week against West Brom because it will be West Brom who will be doing the sitting back. So, I'm expecting to see the Chelsea side that have the ball and try and do something with it, try and attack with it. They've got a lot of 
attacking talent. Like obviously, only Havertz and um, Werner have got on the pitch yet. Hakim Ziyech is yet to make his debut. Ben Chilwell is yet to make his debut at left back. Thiago Silva has to make his debut at centre back. So they've got already got four players on the bench who could automatically already improve some of the options they have. Kristin Pulisic is still injured; he's not fit yet. So they have a lot of options to come into the team. So. I want to see those guys get on the pitch and and play an attacking style of football which they've not done yet. So that that's going to be concerning for Lampard. Interesting. How about the Sheffield United and Leeds game on Sunday? I, I will tell you, I'm very intrigued on on that because I this is our and I know it's early in the season, but this is kind of a a strong reference point for Leeds to get a sense of where where they they would be on the table while well, is that Chris Wilder's going to have a sense is does his squad have it in in them enough to finish as, as high as they do or are they going to end up struggling and, and kind of uh and you know I don't think they're probably relegation serious relegation contenders but could be a few spots above that what what's your take on what that Sunday game is going to bring yeah I- the reason why like i'm going to be looking out for that is cuz the leads have a very, like they they manmark all over the pitch that's one of the core um, sort of tenets of the ls philosophy that all of the leads players are marking one player across the pitch no matter where they are so they're following their man all over the pitch now we know that sheffield united try, like to create overloads down the flanks they have the overlapping center halves who go down there along with the wing back and the wide midfielder so to create a triangle there i want to see if leeds still stick to their man marking they still you know even though there are three players out there they move more their three uh, sort of markers to the field which could potentially open space somewhere else but i want to see if leeds and bielsa still stick to that um, approach or do they try and tweak something to counter how sheffield united play cuz that that's sort of tactical um nuance is what i'm looking to see how it, and how it goes because it's been a couple of years since they played the last played in the championship for a couple of years ago sheffield united got promoted leeds lost out on the playoffs and then now uh, leeds have made it to the premier league a year later so it's their first meeting in a couple of years and it'll be interesting to see how that how that tactical um nuance whether whether bielsa is still as you said whether he adopts to the premier league or he's still dogmatic and he says no you know what we're still going to play the way i want to play right so that Tottenham Newcastle game I, I think in many ways is going to be another w- which it, the all or nothing is is Tottenham the Tottenham of this weekend or of the first weekend uh first weekend being listless versus this weekend being pretty sharp I must admit that Southampton gave them a lot of assists with that the high line is one thing but yeah. not having a defender within 10 yards of Sun on a high line is nearly unforgivable in my mind. Uh you know, I'm I'm a little old school. If you're playing defender, you should be looking around and saying, where is my greatest threat and how can I be right next to him almost hanging on to their jersey if necessary. What do you what are you going to expect to see out of this Tottenham Newcastle game? So, yeah, as you said, I think Southampton sort of gave Spurs so much space to run into, especially Son with that high line you're not going to see that from the newcastle newcastle are going to sit back so i think that like that that sort of approach that newcastle will have will test spurs cuz they didn't really seem to have an answer against everton in terms of creativity 
Now, obviously, the selection that Mourinho had in the team also was a reason for that. They need to have more creative players in there. So, Giovanni Roselso needs to play. Tango and Dombele needs to play if they want to be able to have creativity in midfield to be able to find Kane to and maybe uh, Son Lucas, you know, in midfield. So, I, I want I, I I would be very interested to see the team that Mourinho puts out and then whether that team will be able to break down Newcastle's deep block. Because obviously, when you have a high line, then it's as simple as knocking a ball over the top for Son to chase. But they won't have that space against Newcastle. So I want to see if Mourinho can adapt and get those guys on the pitch and obviously get the, uh, have them be able to break down the Newcastle deep defensive block that they're going to encounter. Right. And maybe their, their secret weapon will help, um, their new secret weapon will help uh, unlock the key to the Newcastle low block. Nah, Garrett Bale's not fit. He's not going to be fit till after the October international break. I think Is that right. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's uh, so. That's very uh, Bale esque, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I don't blame him in the sense that he's barely played. He played like fourteen or fifteen games last season. Yeah. So. I right. Mean, I don't blame the guy, but yeah, obviously, in terms of. Uh, of uh, his name and the prestige signing that he is, it's huge. The Premier League has, act, has had three huge names come into the league, if you look at it that way, from a from global um, reputation and standing perspective. You have James Rodriguez at, at Everton. He's a bona fide star. He's an absolutely brilliant player. Thiago is, in my opinion, one of the best midfielders in the world. He's won the Champions League and walked into Liverpool. And then you have Gareth Bale, who's Who's, I mean, I, the, the stuff he's done after leaving Spurs is amazing. But he was doing amazing stuff at Spurs as well before he left for Madrid. So it's just from a prestige and reputation point of view, they're all brilliant. It now remains to be seen how much of an impact they can have on the field. And Spurs fans are absolutely over the moon. It's like, you know, the prodigal son returns home for them. Right. So Man City Leicester, uh, going to be really interesting. I think this will this will be... Two um, fairly rigorous tests for Man City with Wolves and Leicester um, in the same week. I- I'm going to be very curious to see how they do against the low block. I'm curious to see uh, how that left back is going to be covered with uh, with Leicester. Uh, you know, it's it- it'll be nice to kind of get a-, a gut check of where Man City is right now. Your thoughts? Yeah. So. City don't have Aguero for two months, is what Pep has said. So Gabriel Jesus is going to be their main striker for the foreseeable future. He's probably going to start tomorrow against Wolves and then on the weekend as well against Leicester. The biggest um, problem with Jesus has been, he's obviously great off the ball, does the pressing that uh, Guardiola needs, shuts down passing lanes, pressurizes opponents, all of that. And he's a good goal scorer, but he misses too many chances. Mm-hmm. Aguero is absolutely deadly in that respect. You give Aguero half a sniff of, of, of the goal and he'll score. Jesus is not that good yet. So it might be the case that, and I'm not saying obviously they, they have Sterling, they have uh, De Bruyne, they have other guys in the side who can come in and score goals. But it, the main striker that they have, if you're not really, if he's not the guy who's going to bury a half chance, then you might need to create more chances, obviously, to score those goals. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm looking to see how Jesus does. And I'm also looking to see how Leicester cope with City, obviously. But uh, again, Leicester also a bit of a work in progress. They still have some injury concerns, which if you remember towards the end of last season was the case. Those sort of concerns have carried over this season as well. 
Um, so they haven't really got all their best players on the pitch so far. So I won't really read too much into Leicester at the moment till they get everybody back fit and they play a system and they play the players they want to play in the roles that they want to play. But yeah, City, as I said when I was talking about the Wolves game as well, would want to hit the ground running because it looks like again being a, a, a really close fight between Leicester, uh, between Liverpool and City for the title. So they need every point. They can't afford to give up one. Well, with that in mind, Liverpool is going to have another a second week of a stern test against Arsenal. Yeah. Uh, that's going to be, you know, I wonder if that's going to be so such a a dynamic game that it may end up being a um, a low scoring affair uh, like uh, Chelsea and Liverpool could have been today. Um, it seems like both teams are are coming in into form. Uh, what 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 are the kind of the two or three difference makers that you see? Uh, in that Arsenal-Liverpool match. Yeah, I mean, they played in the Community Shield earlier in the season and Arsenal obviously won it on penalties, but they, they drew in normal time. So they were a lot closer than you would have thought. And again, it, the, the fact that it was effectively pre-season teams and really had too much time um, training and all that played a part. But I can see it being a close game. As you said, I don't think it's going to be a helter-skelter sort of game. There will It will probably be a close one. In terms of individuals on the Arsenal side, I think William is going to be hugely important. Aubameyang, as always. I'm not sure what happened with Tierney in the game against West Ham. He was going to start, but then had to drop out and Kolasinac took his place. So I don't know if that's an injury. But if he's not available, that's a huge loss because he's such a... He, he, when he plays and uh, Arteta is able to play a back three, He's able to then move into a back four in possession because he can go in left back, allow Maitland and Niles to, uh, and Niles to come in, into midfield. Or obviously with Bukayo Saka who played at left wing back um, against West Ham, he can do the same as well. So Tierney has really played well for Arsenal over the last seven or eight games going back to towards the, the end of last season. So he's obviously a huge difference maker, I feel. For Liverpool, it's the usual guys. I mean, Salah, Mane. Um, I don't know if Thiago will start, um, but... Whenever he does come on, he has the ability to absolutely control the tempo of the match. I think Alexander Arnold's had a really quiet start to the season so far. So I don't know how much, um, I mean, whether he can really kick on and try and get those crosses in and get more of an attacking uh, side to his game. We haven't really seen that in the last two games, even in the game against Chelsea when they were playing with them, uh, against them. And Alexander Arnold wasn't really that much of a threat as we've seen. You know, over the last couple of seasons, so right. those are the guys I'm going to be looking out for. Good. So, Harshel, I want to talk. I kind of want to go back and forth a little bit on what are the storylines that you're going to be watching over the first half of this season. What What are the first storylines that come to mind when when I say that? And I want you to mention one, and then we'll kind of go back and forth on some things that we're going to keep an eye out for. Top of my head is probably how Lampard or whether Lampard is able to integrate all of the new signings that he has into the first team, into a coherent uh, style of play and get them up to speed with each other in terms of the understanding, in terms of positioning, in terms of the runs that they make, all of that. And it's going to be very difficult because even though you've got top-class players in, they need to play with each other to understand that you know what sort of run is the guy going to make. So this is the pass that I need to play and vice versa. Werner needs to know when to make the run and to, and where to make the run for Havertz to sort of play that pass out to him, for example. So, or Ziyech, 
for that matter. I mean, Habitat Verona uh, played together for Germany, so they might have a bit of an understanding. Ziyech hasn't played with these guys. Pulisic hasn't played with these guys. At the back, you've got Thiago Silva coming in. He's 35, going to turn 36 in, I think, October. So there's that obvious um, question as to whether if you're going to play a high line, can Thiago play in that sort of high line against some of the Premier League's attackers? So even though he will bring a lot of all- organization and leadership which Chelsea do need but then you need to then drop your line back maybe 10 yards so there's a lot for Lampard to try and um, bring together in this season and as and the problem is that he doesn't really have a safety net anymore in terms of saying that hey you know what we couldn't really make any transfers last year and we still managed to finish fourth Chelsea have backed him to a huge amount they've spent what 250 odd million pounds this summer so he doesn't have any excuses anymore Chelsea absolutely need to finish in the top four at a minimum this season. So I'm going to be looking out to see whether they can, you know, whether he can get that team jetting together. Yeah, you know, I think it's an interesting, uh, that's related to kind of one of my points, which was I think this season, at least in the top six, there's going to be a lot more about, a lot more pressure on actualizing the potential. And Chelsea's probably top of the list. I would say Man U uh, is also uh, pretty high on the list. Uh, I think Arsenal is something yep. we have to pay attention to. Tottenham, you know, I think with the all or nothing, um, Tottenham, uh, you know, is is Mo going to be able to um, – is he going to be able to take a team of – which aren't necessarily his type of players, and it's clear he's turning them into his type of play. And uh, I, I realize that Tottenham don't don't have the money um, to kind of do a, a rebuild in two or three transfer w- windows, uh, but it's going to be really interesting to see. So I, I see a fair bit of pressure on that. I see Liverpool is just kind of uh, tweaking a couple pieces. I see Man City tweaking their defense a little bit, um, having to fix their their striker um, challenge, um, making sure they're getting the goals that they need to on that. Um, yeah, so I really think it's going to be about, uh, turning potential to reality. Otherwise I think there could be some significant coaching changes, um, at the end of the season. Um, so that, that's, that's interesting that you brought that up with respect to Chelsea, which is the poster child for that. I will tell you that my thing that I'm going to be paying attention to is the evolving nature of some of the, the tactics, um, that are, that are going on. You know, I, I think historically kind of as a, as a reference point, there were of the big four, there were through, there was one team, which was kind of possession play, which would be Arsenal. And then you had three counterattacking teams. Um, then there was this love of possession. Uh, and now I, you know, what I'm seeing Liverpool in particular is adapting to is, is, is trying to go for a more direct style of play, trying to play the high lines, really take advantage of diagonal passing or even straight through um, passing, which is funny because uh, it seems like we're almost coming back full circle back to the old days of kind of hitting the long ball, um, which uh, again is uh, the ball, the way the ball is being delivered has changed fairly dramatically. But the idea is a very direct, very progressive long pass uh, onto uh, running strikers. So I'm uh, that and, and Bielsa is, is just going to be, uh, and, and Sheffield United, 
you know, I, I also follow the city of fairly closely, and that for years has been kind of a, a really interesting flora of different tactics. And I think that um, the Premier League has been fairly binary. And I'm just so excited about this season, about trying to understand that nuance. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you've absolutely nailed it when you talk about going back in time, not in time, but in terms of tactical evolution with sort of going back to an era where more direct football was prevalent. And that's obviously a result of the fact that because teams press, most teams at least try to press somewhat high, the easiest way to bypass a press is to play a long ball or progressive pass, you know. Mm-hmm. So we are seeing teams try to do that a lot more. You mentioned Liverpool. Liverpool, Liverpool I don't think under Klopp have ever been shy of playing a long pass. And they've especially with the fullbacks, they, they like to get those guys on the ball and then get sort of diagonal long passes in from the flanks. Um, Pep, for example, obviously still very possession-oriented, but he has a De Bruyne, for example, who can switch play and play a long pass out when necessary. We've seen Edison, their goalkeeper, at times play huge kicks downfield, which then leaves the striker one-on-one with the defender, for example. So, yeah, that sort of evolution has been really interesting to see over the last maybe 18 months or so and I think that's going to continue. A lot of teams still play that way. Sheffield United, Wolves, um, Chelsea have been doing that for the first two games of the season but I don't think that's how they want to go about it. Uh, but yeah, that, that tactical nuance is going to be very, very interesting to watch. Well, I, I, that goes. I'll tell you, I'm just, I'm frankly, I'm getting tired of watching a superior possession team try to break a low block like, um, like breaking into a clam, uh, you know, it's just, it's not very entertaining football. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I think that the Premier League literally has the best talent in the world, and that's because of dollars or pounds, I should say. But, you know, there are other places I think have had decided to take a tactical leadership, uh, namely um, Italy. Uh, and I just, I'm really glad to see that um, that happened. Um, now, what I am going to find interesting, and I brought this up a little bit earlier, is uh, is can people afford dogma in the Premier League? If you're Man City, you can buy enough players according to what your dogma is, right? Uh, maybe if you're Man U, you can you can do that. But someone like a Bielsa, I just don't know if they have enough money to afford to be fully dogmatic. So do you have any thoughts on kind of dogma versus pragmatism in the Premier League now? What I'm going to say is that before Pep came into the league and when, so his signing was obviously confirmed while Manuel Pellegrini was still manager. So there was a good four or five months where everybody knew that he's coming to the Premier League the following season. Mm -hmm. And all you heard from the British media was that his way of playing won't work in the Premier League. It's too physical. It's too fast. It's this, it's that and all of that. And, that obviously hasn't proven to be the case. Now, he obviously it's not the same model that was used um, when he was manager at Barcelona. He made changes for the Bundesliga when he went to Bayern, and he's made changes obviously to uh, suit the Premier League when he uh, at City. So with Bielsa, I think we've, he's he spent two seasons in the Championship, which isn't too dissimilar to the Premier League nowadays, to be honest. In terms of playing style, obviously there is a massive gulf in quality. But a lot of teams in the championship also try to keep the ball and it's not just long ball and hoof ball, which it used to be, say, two decades ago. So 
if it's I think Leeds have come up against a similar style of opponent in the championship as they can expect to see a majority of the time in the Premier League. Obviously, Liverpool, City, Chelsea. Not Chelsea, I mean, but in terms of tactical styles, at least Liverpool and City would be streets ahead. But some of the mid-table sides, I don't think that Bielsa is going to be too um, sort of overawed or he's going to be feeling as if they're going to, they're, they're, that Leeds won't have a chance against the likes of West Ham or, or Everton, for example. And the thing with Leeds is that money, that spending money is not a solution for them because Bielsa needs his players to be absolutely 100% um, sort of on board and to be able to understand his method before he plays them. They've signed a 30 million pound striker, Rodrigo from Valencia. The guy starts for Spain. He's Spain's starting striker. But he hasn't played, I mean, he hasn't started a game yet in the league. He started in the Carabao Cup, but he's been on the bench for both games. Why? Because he's not yet up to speed with how Leeds play and how Bielsa expects his striker to play in his system. So, even so it's it's a case of Leeds will only pay the money for the players that lead, that Bielsa believes can play in his system, and then he'll only play them when they're fully versed, well versed with that system. The guys who are playing right now have been playing in that system for two years. Most of the guys on the pitch uh, in the starting eleven, so they know the way to play in and out. And I think that that tactical familiarity and that cohesion is more of a benefit than buying a forty or a thirty million pound player and putting them to the team. So I feel and that's where that that the fact that you said that coming down to dogma versus pragmatism, I think that yeah. that's where Bielsa and his dogma can work because the guys who are who he puts on the pitch as part of his dogma know their roles in and out. Yeah, I, I, time will tell on that. I mean, what I yeah. see is at the bottom of the pyramid are those teams that don't have a clear style of play and they're just too flexible, and they're those that are low block. Right. And then there are those that are kind of are opportunistic. Uh, Wolves is a perfect example, I feel like. And then you've got kind of the possession based high press, but different nuances. And what's happened is, is that the bottom of the pyramid is getting thinner and the top is getting wider. And that's making for a lot more entertaining play and hopefully maybe a greater sense of parity. I mean, it'll be the league will have a lot more parity than last year because uh, there's not going to be a, uh, a team that's going to be so far ahead. But, you know, I, I'm hoping for the league that we don't turn into another La Liga where there are two teams that are really having yeah. only a legitimate chance of winning. That's not very entertaining. Neither is Ligue 1 where you have one, right? So, yeah. uh, and, and frankly, Bundesliga is, is, is a kind of a two-team game uh, or, or, or league as well. You know, one one thing I want to kind of get your final take on is, you know, I'm watching the all or nothing, as is a lot of the soccer or football world is, and you hear Marino talk so much about winning, winning, winning. Now, if you hear, if you listen to the Pep and the and the Klopp uh, uh, interviews, they're always focused on process, right? process, focusing on the little things, and bringing the intensity. And I think Mourinho is also about bringing intensity. I totally get that. But I just, you know, to me personally, I really think of the focus on winning, which is outcomes, which honestly you can't control. And if you, when you do lose, then it starts to work at your, your confidence, 
And then your comp, if your confidence starts to lose away, your teammates pick up on it, your opponents pick up on it, and you're just in a, in a, in a vicious circle. So I, I'm really curious to kind of see where the league is in terms of that we must win versus we must focus on the process. And I wonder, you know, uh, I know in the, it seemed like in the National Football League, they've all the focus on winning my way or the highway coaches they're gone, right? They're much more process driven. What what are your thoughts on that? I think I think you can maybe categorize all if not all most of the clubs and their managers into one of those two categories that we said, you know, that they either have a manager who's um process oriented or one who's outcome oriented. So as you said, Gurinho is obviously outcome oriented. He cares about the win, no matter how you get it, as long as you win on the pitch, that's all that matters. Maybe I mean I'm not gonna there are a bunch of other managers who maybe fall into that bracket. I wouldn't say that they care, don't care about the process, but it's more about that they need to win more than there being any sign of process. So maybe Fulham, West Brom, so Scott Parker, Slavin Village, even David Moyes at West Ham, they need the wins more than, you know, have at the moment than having a sort of defined process or a defined style of play because those teams are going to be down at the bottom towards, you know, in delegation trouble. Look at Brighton, for example. That's a very clear... Um, example of process over outcome. They came very, they came reasonably close to relegation last time, but they made that managerial change with a mind to having that process of okay, we're going to play this way. These are the players we're going to buy, or these are the guys we're going to promote from our academy and or, or whatever into the team because they can play in a certain way, and they've, they've stuck with that. I mean, Graham Potter was given, I think, a three-year or four-year contract when he signed. And the owner last year and the owner extended it to make it a six-year contract within, I think, eight weeks or so of him signing. Mm. Where I mean, I don't think there was too much progress in that time, but he made it a six-year contract, which just tells you that he's he's basically told him, you know what, results obviously do matter. We need to stay in the Premier League, but I want you to develop our style of play and develop all of that. Ralph Hasenhutl at Southampton is another example. They lost 9-0 to Leicester last year, if you remember. And there was a lot of outcry and that he gets sacked and all of that. But the guys at Southampton, the management, the chief executive, they kept their heads. He's put a process into place. He has a proper defined style of play. You know, he plays a 4-2-2-2, high press, direct. And they, they did well last season. They've not started off that well this season. But again, I put down put that down the fact that they've not had a proper preseason. There's a lot of, there's a need for a lot of uh, intensity in terms of physicality and fitness in that Southampton system. Mm-hmm. And they're still getting up to speed there because they've not, because there's been a short preseason. So I expect Southampton to get better as the season goes on. But they too are an example of a club which have a clear process. And it's these mid-table sides which can, ex- I mean, you, you can't expect these teams to challenge for the Champions League or the title. But yeah. this is what the fans want to see then, right? I mean, if you're a team like Brighton who've gotten promoted, who've survived, I mean, not gotten relegated over the last two, three seasons. How long are you going to be okay with, okay, fine, we're going to finish 15th or 16th in the league every year. We're going to win a few games. We're going to mostly play in a low block and counter and win a few games that way and that will keep us in the league. And fans aren't going to be happy with that, right? Like you're not going to, have, I mean, there's not a lot of enjoyment, as you said, in watching that. So if you can't really compete at the top of the table, the only other thing you can do is to develop a style of play, to develop a system, uh, a philosophy, which can entertain and which can still, you can still point to that and say that, you know what, we're making progress here. So I'm firmly on the side of process over outcome. 
with Mourinho and a bunch of other managers are probably on this still I wouldn't say stuck but their point of view is that it as long as you win the game of football it doesn't matter hey that if that's what works for you and that could end up working for you at clubs that have very large budgets but um yeah. well good well uh thank you so much uh Harshel uh we would like to thank our sponsor, the EPL Prospectus, Moneyball for Football, Analytics Plus Eye Candy, available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. Join us on our next Football Thinking Fans podcast. For now, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao.